Father, we need your help tonight. We need your help to understand this part of the Bible. We need your help to understand why it's there and what you want to say to us through it. So Lord, help us tonight in our thinking. Help me tonight in my preaching. And Lord, we ask that you'd speak to us. Lord, we pray tonight that even though this is a hard part, that we would leave here later on glad that we have at least looked at it and come to understand more about it. Speak to us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So preaching the whole Bible, as we started doing back in Genesis and and running right through to Revelation, it's got advantages and it's got disadvantages. So the advantage is that we're exposed to what Paul calls the whole counsel of God. We get to see the big picture. We get to see a lot of different things that God says to us through the whole of the Bible. But the disadvantage is that you come to some really, really tough parts. And tonight is a really, really tough part, especially for the preacher. If I wasn't preaching through the whole Bible, if we weren't doing this series, would I choose to preach on the middle passages in the book of Joshua? Probably not. Would I choose to preach on the middle passages of Joshua whenever we had people here for the first time? Definitely not. (laughs) But it's in our plan as we go through the whole Bible. And so tonight we're looking at some of what I think are not only the most difficult passages in the book of Joshua, but arguably some of the most difficult passages in the whole of the Bible. And there's two things, you see, that make these verses difficult. I'll get onto those in a minute, but just the book of Joshua, do you remember what it's about? It's about God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Back in Genesis 12, do you remember? 400 years ago, it might feel like that to you, but it was literally 400 years before they went in. God said to Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a land to live in, the land of Canaan, and you're going to be a blessing to the nations. And since that promise, we've seen them on a big journey, haven't we? We've seen them grow into a nation in the land of Egypt where they were slaves, and they were slaves there for hundreds of years. Then God miraculously rescued them out of slavery in Egypt They were brought to the edge of the promised land, but they went in and they got scared. Big cities, big men, big walls were frightened. They didn't go in. For the past 40 years, they've wandered about the wilderness. And then we come to the book of Joshua, and and it's split up into three parts. So chapters 1 to 5, you've got them kind of going over the Jordan River, and they've just entered the land, and they spy it out. Then we've got the last chapters in the book of Joshua, from chapters 13 to 24, And at the end of Joshua, they're all settling in the land. And at the end, they make a promise to live for God. And we we looked at the first part last week, and that was good. That was really encouraging. We saw that Rahab was saved, and it was brilliant. We saw all of God's grace. It's quite nice to look at the end, because at the end, Joshua says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But the middle part is really difficult. Because the middle part is about them taking the land. And as we read in Joshua chapter 10, that just gives you a flavor of what's in these chapters. They go and they take the land by force. And there's two things that make these chapters, well, difficult. The first thing is this. It's filled with mass killings. It's just filled with mass killings. City after city, Joshua and the Israelites go into it. And what does it say in the text? They leave no survivors. They put them to the sword. That's difficult, isn't it? How do we get our heads around that? God's people going into places and and killing everybody? 
that makes these verses, these chapters really difficult. But the second thing that I think makes it even more difficult is that God commands this. That God actually tells them to do this. There are some Bible scholars and they kind of try to do some gymnastics and they say, no, God, God didn't say that. You know, God, God didn't tell them to kill everybody. They, they did that off their own back. They shouldn't have done it. That was wrong. God never said that. But look with me at the passage. Look at verse 40 with me. It's the last verse. You see what it says? Uh, if I can find it, sorry. Verse 40, so Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes together with all their kings. Then listen to this, he left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed. And then this is the bit that's difficult. Just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. He went in, and he brought the Israelites in, and they left no one alive. And he did this just as the Lord commanded. Difficult, isn't it? Mass killings, and God told them to do it. This is a hard part of the Bible. This is hard to get our heads around. And we may be tempted tonight to just, well, think, well, let's just ignore it, but we can't. And there's a number of reasons why we can't ignore it. The first reason is a good one. We can't ignore this part of the Bible because God has given it to us. And as uncomfortable as this part of the Bible might be for us, God has put it here for a reason. He's put it here to teach us something about himself. So we've got to keep that in mind. Tonight we're going to learn something about God. He's put it here for us to learn about him. But the second reason we need to find out about this part of the Bible, especially if you're a university student, it's because this is one of those parts of the Bible that people who are against Christianity love to bring up, don't they? I don't know if you've read Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. The premise of his book is that he's putting a book together to try to convince people that they're deluded about God and that they should really not have faith in God if they're a Christian. It's really trying to turn people away from belief in God. And he does it in all sorts of ways. So he talks about evolution and he talks about all of these hot topics that Christians might think about or might not know much about. But then what he does in his book is he brings up this. He brings up these middle parts of the book of Joshua. Now, just so you know, he's not a very good Bible scholar, so if you read it and you know your Bible, he doesn't do a particularly good job of explaining it. But he knows enough to know that God has commanded this. And he knows enough that God has said to go in and kill people. And so what does he say? He says, how can you believe in a God who would do this? Is that your God? It doesn't sound very nice. Is that your God? Is that the God you worship? How could you worship a God like that? And tonight we need to actually look at the text. We need to understand what's going on here. We need to understand why this is happening. We need to try to get some answers to some of the questions we have about these parts of the Bible. Why? So that whenever that neo-atheist or that anti-theist comes up to you in university and starts talking about this, so you have an idea of how to answer them, or at least how to engage with them, at least how to speak to them. Now, I've got to say, we've got about 25 minutes here, maybe 30 at the most. And every question that you have to ask about these passages is not going to be answered tonight. I'm really sorry. 
uh, just can't possibly do that. But there are five questions tonight that I think are really important to answer. And we're going to go through them. They're on your sheet. You'll see them as we go through. And the first one is this, is what exactly did God command regarding the conquest? So the conquest is that going into the land and taking it. And the first question is this, what exactly did God command? You see, whenever someone at the university brings up these chapters, what they tell you is that God commanded the killing. And that's as far as they go. But what most people don't seem to understand, including Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, what they don't seem to understand is that regarding the conquest, regarding taking the land, there was actually two parts to God's command. There was two parts. And the first part of the command was not actually to kill people. What God had said that the people were to do was he said they were to go in and they were to drive the people out. They were to go in and the Canaanites were to get out of the land. They were to go in and just their presence, just by being there, the people were supposed to see them and know that God was giving them the land and that they were meant to flee. And you see it if you have a look at your handouts. Do you see it there? Verse 31, Exodus uh, Exodus 23, verse 31. So this is to Moses back in Exodus. And God says, I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, from the desert to the Euphrates River. I will give into your hands the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. So Moses, your people are going to go in and you're going to drive the people out of the land. That's the first part of the command. And again, we see it reiterated in Numbers 33. Verse 50, have a look at the verse under On the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho, so this is just before they go in, this is the book of Numbers, just before they go into the land, the Lord said to Moses, verse 51, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into Canaan, drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Drive them out. Do you see that? You're to go in and you're to drive them out. And then what are they meant to destroy? To destroy all their carved images and their cast idols and demolish all their high places. Take possession of the land and settle in it for I have given you the land to possess. But the first thing that God says for them to do is to drive them out. Initially, they're not meant to kill anybody. Initially, they're meant to drive out the inhabitants of the land. I was in Lebanon a couple of years ago and I spent time with Syrian refugees. And it was really interesting speaking to them because the refugees in Syria, they fled Syria, they left the country. They fled their homes. And you know whenever they fled, they didn't flee whenever Assad's trips or when ISIS, because they were kind of in between the two, they didn't flee when they arrived, they fled whenever they heard they're coming. Assad's trips are 20 miles away. They're coming for our town. Let's all pack up. Let's get out of here. ISIS are on the move. They're coming to our town. Let's pack up and get out of here before they come. You see, that's how it works. Warfare, we're not really used to it here in this part of the world. But they're well used to it in other parts of the world. And this is how it works. Whenever a strong force is coming, the towns know they're coming and they leave. And this is what was meant to happen. Do you remember what Rahab said last week? I know that the Lord your God is giving you this land. They knew that God was giving the Israelites the land. When they saw the Israelites coming, what they were meant to do was leave, get out, flee, like the Syrians did when Assad's troops were coming. 
But think about that for a second. What if they had have left? What if they had have just got out of there? None of them would have been killed. There was no command to go after them. This was not a matter of race. This was not about them being Canaanites. They weren't trying to have a genocide. They weren't trying to slaughter them because of their race. God was giving them the land. And if the Canaanites had have left the land, if they had have seen the Israelites coming, knowing that God was giving it to them, not one of them would have died. But they didn't leave. And this was where the command to destroy everyone came in. God says then, but those who stay in the cities, those who don't leave, those who decide to stand and fight, those who decide to oppose me and you, well, then you're to kill. Them you are to destroy. Them you are to wipe out. Now, that's still not easy for us to get our heads around, is it? That's still a difficult thing for us to understand. But it is what the Bible says. Again, have a look at that. Deuteronomy 20, 16, uh, page 3. However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, uh, do not leave any alive, anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. But you see where it is, verse 16, in the cities. So Joshua, whenever you go, and whenever you finally reach the city, if they've not left, then you're to destroy them. Then you are to kill them. Then you are to wipe them out. Anyone who breathes, you shall not leave alive. Difficult passages. But do you see that no one had to die? Do you see that they could have left? One of the other things I think we struggle to understand here is that whenever the Canaanites stayed, Whenever they decided to fight, what they were actually doing was standing, standing against God. Do you understand that? They had heard what God had done to the kings of Shion and Og. They'd heard that God was giving the people the land. And so whenever the Israelites came in, whenever they stood and fought, what they were saying is, God, we're going to fight against you. We're opposing you. We're opposing your plan. We're opposing your will. They were choosing to fight with God. And it was never a battle they were going to win. But if they had have left, they would have lived. Now, I hope you get that. I hope you understand that. It doesn't make it particularly easy to understand. It doesn't leave us without lots and lots of questions. But I hope you at least understand that. They could have all lived if they had have left. But they chose to stay and to oppose God. Which I think leaves us to our next question. So what's question number two? It's this. Why did God command the removal of the Canaanites from their land? Or else their destruction? Why did God do this? I mean, okay, we know that Israel were his people. We know he wanted to give them a land. But why choose the Canaanites? Why was God going to kick them out? Why did God want them out of the land? Why did God say that they were to be destroyed if they didn't leave? It seems very harsh, doesn't it? Why does God do that? Well, there are three reasons. And the first one is this. This was a judgment for their sin. 
It's really interesting whenever you read the likes of Richard Dawkins because what he does is he portrays the Canaanites as being people just like us. Just kind of normal people, having a nice life, getting on with things in a nice society. And he portrays them just as being, well, not so bad, really. And then you have this horrible, angry God who comes in and kind of kicks them out for no reason at all. But that is not the reality of what the Canaanites were like. The Canaanites were a wicked, wicked people, and I don't say that lightly. You know that I don't really use that word very much, but they were, they were a wicked, wicked people. And their whole society was a wicked society, and their whole culture was a wicked culture. And the reason why God was going to drive them out of the land or have them killed was really a judgment for their sin. And again, you can see this in the passages. Have a look there at the passage at the bottom of page three. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. He says, listen, Israelites, you're not getting the land because you're righteous. No, it's on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. Do you see that? Israelites, I'm not giving you the land because you're particularly good. You're not. You know, you rebel against me all the time. But the reason I'm giving you the land, the reason I'm driving them out is because they are exceedingly wicked on account of the wickedness of these nations. This is a judgment for their sin. This is a judgment for how they're living. Okay, Marty, what were they doing that was so bad? I mean, really? Were they really that bad? Well, yes, they were. You see, what the Canaanites did was they said evil things were good. They did all sorts of evil things. As part of their worship, they committed incest, bestiality. As part of their worship, they sacrificed children to the god Molech. There was another god that they worshipped, and uh, archaeologists have found a kind of shrine to him, and it's this cauldron that they would put the children in and burn them to death and the smoke would go up through the nose of this idol. You see, here in the West, all of our laws are based on Christian principles, and we have this nice society where it's wrong to murder, and it's wrong to kill, and it's wrong to steal, and it's wrong to commit adultery, and it's wrong to do all sorts of things. We live in a world where our morals are based on Christian principles. But can you imagine a society where the gods ask you to sacrifice children? Can you imagine what it's like to live in that society, in that world? Can you imagine how awful it was? Can you imagine how terrible it was? Can you imagine the wickedness that pervaded all of the culture? These were an exceedingly wicked people. This is not God just getting a little bit annoyed at some minor sin. This is God bringing judgment upon real, real wickedness and that's why he says to drive them out or that's why he says to kill them to kill this awful culture to get rid of it from the land it's a judgment for their sin is the first thing the second thing it is it, it was there they, they were to get out of the land to remove their influence um, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of someone you love or care about being influenced by someone in a really bad way Maybe you have a family member who's been influenced by someone on drugs and now they're a drug addict. 
Maybe you've had a good friend influenced by someone who's an alcohol abuser and now they're an alcohol abuser too. Maybe you've had someone in your family or someone in your friend group and you've seen them be influenced in a really bad way by another person. Well, the second reason why they were to drive the, the Canaanites out is to remove their bad influence. To remove their bad influence. Get out, get them out so they don't influence you. You see, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because Israel were really good at idolatry, weren't they? Do you remember back in, 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 in Exodus, God had brought them out of the land. He'd rescued them with mighty power. He'd done this amazing thing. And Moses, he's up in the mountain getting God's rules. And what do they do down there? They make this golden bull. And they worship it. They're good at idolatry. They're good at turning away from God. And the second reason they're to be cast out, the second reason they can't live amongst the Israelites, the second reason why they got to go, if you like, is so they don't influence them. And again, you see that if you have a look in the middle passage on page uh, four. So it says, however, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. As the Lord your God has commanded you, verse 18, otherwise, they will teach you to follow all their detestable things that they do in worshiping their gods and you will sin against the Lord your God. You have to get them out, folks. You have to get them out of the land because if you don't get them out of the land or if you don't kill them off, do you know what's going to happen? They're going to influence you and you're going to start to worship their gods and do the things that they do. I don't want to spoil the rest of our Bible project but they don't kill them all and they don't get them all out. And this exact thing happens. The Israelites turn from God and they worship idols. But that was the reason to get them out so they wouldn't be a bad influence upon them. And the last reason is this, get them out or destroy them. It was a warning, a warning to Israel. And again, you see that in the next part. If you defile the land, it will vomit you out as I vomited out the nations that were in it before you. Listen, Israelites. The reason that you're to drive them out is because I want you to see the picture here. I want you to see, Israelites, what's going to happen to you if you turn away from me in this land. I've given you this land and I'm calling you to live for me. I'm calling you to serve me. And if you don't, as you watch these Canaanites being driven out, know that that will happen to you. And again, I don't want to spoil the story, but that exact thing happened. The Israelites are driven out later on in the Bible. It doesn't make it easier to understand. It doesn't make it less uncomfortable. But can you see the reasons why they were to be driven out or why they were to be destroyed? A judgment for sin, to remove a bad influence as a warning to Israel. Which brings us to our third question. Where's God's grace in all of this? Where is God's grace in all of this? It was amazing last week, wasn't it? You were smiling last week. We felt really good last week as we saw God show grace to Rahab, the prostitute, the Canaanite. We, we saw him rescue her. We saw him give her mercy of forgiveness. And then we saw him give her grace, bring her into the people of God. Then we come to this part and we can't help but ask ourselves, where is the grace of God in all of this? 
think there's grace in a few ways. The first way is this, that God had given them time to repent. You see, back in Genesis, God had talked about the Canaanites and their wickedness even then. He talked about their sin. He talked about their wickedness. I think it's Genesis chapter 15. You see, for 400 years, this society had not gotten any better. For 400 years, they'd sacrificed these children. For 400 years, they'd done these detestable things, and there was no sign of them changing. But there's grace in that God had actually been very patient. He'd been patient, waiting for them to repent. He'd been patient, waiting for them to turn. He'd been patient, waiting for them to stop. There was grace in giving them time to repent, even though they didn't. How else was there grace? There was grace that those who submitted to him and left could have lived. Those who actually said, you know what? God is God and he's taking this land and what I'm going to do is instead of opposing him, I'm going to just accept that he's God and I'm going to follow his command and I'm going to leave. There was grace in that they had the opportunity to live. They had the opportunity, I guess, to be saved, if you like. But they didn't take it. And folks, you know what's really sad? What's really sad is that today it's exactly the same. You think of the Lord Jesus Christ. He died on the cross and he took on the sin of everyone who will trust in him. He died on the cross for anyone who will believe in his name, for anyone who will rely on him for forgiveness, for anyone who will trust in him for salvation. Jesus has done everything that's needed for a person to be saved. And all that a person needs to do to be saved is to accept that and say, yes, I can't save myself. I need you. Yes, Jesus, you are the Lord and I bow to you and I make you my king. There's this grace and it's available to everyone. But many will not accept it. Many will oppose it. Many will resist it. Many will say, no, thank you very much. And they're going to perish simply because they won't receive the grace of God that's offered in Christ. Where's the grace of God in this passage? It's that they could have been saved. Where's the grace of God in this passage? It's that God had very a long time of patience before judging them. He gave them time to repent. Can I just say, maybe you're here tonight and you're putting that repentance off. Maybe you're here tonight and you know you're not right with the Lord. You've not received that gift of forgiveness and you're putting it off. God's being very patient with you. But please know that there will be a point when his patience comes to an end. And if it comes to an end, there will be no hope of salvation for you. Tonight, please, I plead with you as your minister. I plead with you as your friend. I plead with you just as a human being if you're putting off coming to Christ stop while there's grace to be received please receive it before it's too late okay let's move on to our next question what do these passages tell us about God I think very simply it's that God is not only a God of grace but he is a God of judgment 
He's not only a God who will forgive sin, every sin, all sin, to those who trust in Jesus, but he's also a God who will one day judge sin. And I think it's really important we remember that. That yes, it's great to know him as our father, that yes, it's great to experience him and enjoy him, but folks, let us not think that God thinks of sin lightly. He doesn't. He hates it. It offends him. Please, let's remember that. Okay, let's go on to your last one. Uh, and this one's kind of interesting. How on earth does this apply to our lives? Well, the good news is that it doesn't apply to our lives and that we're meant to get our swords out and go on kind of conquest. That's wrong. It's really interesting because the crusaders did that, didn't they? They took their swords and they went into these nations and they slayed people who didn't bow. They took these passages and they distorted them and they said, this is what we're meant to do. That is not what we're meant to do. This was never intended to be a model of what Christians are meant to do. I know it would never happen today, but we're not like those who have jihad. This is not our prerogative. We're not to do this sort of thing. So just let's remember that. This is never an excuse for us to do anything like this or for any Christians to do anything like this. We're not called ever to violence. This was a one-off thing to give the people the land. Okay, Marty, but what then has it got to do with us? What has it got to do with us? I think it's telling us that we need to kill sin. Or I think it's telling us that we need to kill those things that have the potential to lead us away from God. That's what the Canaanites were going to do ultimately, wasn't it? They were going to entice God's people away from God. And tonight maybe you're here and you're a Christian and you follow Jesus and you love Jesus, but you know that there are certain things in your life that are threatening to pull you away from God. Certain things in your life, certain people in your life that are threatening to pull you away from God, they're always enticing you, they're always drawing you in, they're always drawing you away from Christ. And what I want to say to you tonight is that you need to cut those off. You need to identify what those are. And you need to put them to death. Maybe you're here tonight and you're in a relationship with someone who's not a Christian. And you actually know that that relationship is pulling you further and further away from Christ. I don't mean a marriage. I'm not asking you or telling you to get divorced. Please don't hear me. But maybe you're in a a relationship, a boyfriend-girlfriend type relationship like that. Maybe you need to end it. Or maybe you watch TV programs or listen to certain podcasts or or listen to certain music and as you listen to it or watch it you find yourself being drawn away from Jesus away from faith maybe tonight you need to, to turn those things off or to kill those things in your life but the tragedy of this passage yes it's tragic in some ways that the Canaanites were killed but the real tragedy is that those they left corrupted them And in the long term, because they didn't actually do what God commanded, they ended up drifting away or walking away or running away from God. I have not enjoyed preaching this. I didn't enjoy preparing it. I think it's probably left us with a lot more questions than answers. Um, I'm looking forward to anything other than this next week. 
In fact, I might be in the book of Judges next week, so maybe not. But, but, <laughs> but I do hope that in some ways this has been a little bit helpful to look at. And the, the thing I want you to remember is that, yes, God is a God of justice and, and judgment, and he does hate sin. And, he, and he's, he's all just, and he's all holy, but he's also gracious. And we need to hold these two things together. Let's pray tonight. Father, I would ask that through my mumbling and stumbling sermon that you will have spoken. I pray, Lord, that despite all of the different questions we still have in our minds, despite all of the unanswered questions that we have, that some of these questions would have been helpful for us tonight. And Lord, I would pray that, that your word would do its work in our lives tonight. Father, may we leave here not just with questions, but with answers of what you're like. The God who judges sin, but also the God who is able and willing to forgive everyone who trusts in Christ. Lord, we thank you for your grace because we're just like the Canaanites. We're wicked. We oppose you. We rebel against you. We don't live your way. We turn to idols. And so we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. We thank you that you have cleansed us of all of our sin. And thank you that even when we fulfill you, because of Jesus, we still belong to you. Lord, we thank you for the, the mercy and grace you've shown us. We know we don't deserve it. And so we thank you for it again. In Jesus' name.